Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Filler podcast. I'm not going to say the welcome to the podcast that yada 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 anymore, mainly because, you know, I just can't come up with any new ideas and I'm sure you guys really don't give a shit about what I think or compare this podcast to, right? Okay, I got that out of the way. Welcome to Pack Filler. Hi, you guys. It's me, Pat Bolger in studios. I know it's been a while. I know it's been a while. I apologize. I was thinking about you the entire time, though, I promise. Actually, it's been kind of crazy these past uh, few weeks, Um, and as some of you may know, we've been busy shooting episode one of Bike Town, our new, hopefully soon-to-be-coming web series. Um, We were on location in the wonderful town of Bend, Oregon. I can't give away too many spoilers, can I? Because if I did, why would you even bother watching the web series, but we're going to hopefully get together a a couple more episodes. I want to be able to release at least uh, a trilogy, so to speak, of some episodes before we release them. So big, you know, be prepared for that coming probably, probably sometime this fall, you know, might be able to get a town and get some cyclocross races in and things like that. Big thanks to Karsten Hagen, producer extraordinaire of the Packfield podcast. You've heard him on here many times. You will see him on that episode. Karsten, a resident of Bend, Oregon, he helped me put this entire episode together in that about three, maybe four-day shoot we did there with some great riders, including Carl Decker, Serena Bishop-Gordon, who you both have heard on this show, Ryan Trebon, hey, you've heard him on this show, Bart Bowen, hey, you've heard him on this show, and Spencer Newell, yep, you've heard him on this show. All great to meet some of those guys in person, even though, you know, I've talked to him on the phone, but it was great to go down there and actually spend some time riding in in the trails and the roads of Bend, Oregon, so... Great time, hot weather, great people episode coming up this fall. What else is going on? The tour has come and gone. I know, I, don't even, I didn't even do a tour recap show because why bother doing a tour recap show? I think every dog and pony with a podcast did a tour recap show. I'm fighting the power. No, it was a good race. It was, it was, I was really, really happy with it. And in my opinion, one of the more exciting tours I've seen in the last several years, unless you're... Vincenzo Nibali, and then you're probably pissed about that part of it. Vuelta underway right now. I just finished watching. Actually, it's Sunday of Labor Day weekend right now. I just finished watching Saturday's stage, and I haven't seen today's stage. So hopefully that'll be something uh, that'll get kind of interesting. Everything's kind of blown apart in the Vuelta so far. I mean, everybody you thought was going to be a somewhat of a leader coming in is seeming to fail. And uh, you know, if I'm pretty, if I'm missing out on something because I haven't watched today's mountain stage, you can all laugh at my expense because maybe something got completely blown apart. I'm waiting to see something exciting. And I really hope Valverde is clean because that guy is a mutant that he's riding so damn well. And he's so damn old. Oh, fall riding. Speaking of being old, 
I've been able to get out and do some writing, and it's been really nice, you guys. And I have a confession to make. I'm, I'm going to say it here first, so you can all call me on the carpet if I should fail. That This is what, you know, I, I'm being, you guys can fact check me come next year at this time. You guys, my confession is, I took out a USA Cycling license. I renewed my USA Cycling license. I know what you're thinking, Pat, this, this is a show about riding and racing. You don't have a USA Cycling license? You know what? I haven't for the last couple of years. I've, I got kind of disenchanted with the USAC. I got disenchanted with the road racing as a genre. As I tend to say a lot on this show, I'm, I'm, I think it's suffering. Um, I, I don't know if, in my personal opinion, if USAC is doing enough to help make cycling sustainable in this country. Um, and so... I've been kind of resistant to do that. And, and to be honest, I also got tired of a lot of roadies. Um, and I, you know, I am a roadie and I have a lot of good friends who are roadies, but I got tired of the usual suspects all at the same start line, wearing the same kits and staring down their noses at me. And so I, I, I guess I got a little disenchanted over the years. And just recently I was fortunate enough to be able to announce the Washington, North Idaho state championships, road race and, and crit. And I had a really good time doing that. And I saw some people and I kind of renewed some friendships and, and I, I got kind of excited about bike racing again on the road. And so here we are, uh, I guess I, I'm putting my money where my mouth is and, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe supporting the sport from the inside. And so I'm going to try to start off by racing cross again this season. And if you are a fan of the show, you know that Cyclocross and I go together. Well, let's just say we don't go together very well. I'm My goal in cross this season is to not be last. I know what you're thinking. Pat, you, you, you ride all the time. You're, you're God's gift to the two-wheeled machine. Well, you might not be thinking that. But, and I, and I race mountain bikes and I do okay on mountain bikes on the technical stuff. It's just cross. I don't know. I've got, it's a completely different beast. It looks like a lot of fun until you probably step out into the cold, rainy, wet weather, which I will probably pussy out in when that kind of appears. But, um, I'm going to try some cyclocross. I've been, I've been hitting the, the bike, I've been doing some, some intensity, some intervals and we'll see. God help me. God help me. It should be funny. Um, at least it'll give us some, some, you know, some references to talk about on the show. And I can beg for assistance and advice from any of you guys who have been doing cross for years and who are faster than shit at cross. And yeah, I'm, I'm the guy who gets lapped. I, I, you know, I don't think I'm that far out of shape. I just think it's I, I, air pressure. I think it's technical stuff that I, I'm not really accomplished at. I, and I, you just got to do it, right? You got to do it more in order to get faster at it. So... We'll see. Throwing my hat into the competitive ring. And hopefully that'll lead to maybe even some competitive road and off-road uh, next season. I know I'm thinking of next season already. But before I get to that, I do want to say, and this kind of leads into our guest today, I was fortunate enough to be able to participate in an event here in Spokane, Washington, uh, that has a storied tradition. A uh, lot of riders, a lot of it's it's an interesting group of riders that meet uh, the first Sunday in August, and they meet at midnight, and they meet at a pub. Some guys do some beer drinking beforehand. I think that's absolutely insane, but meet at a pub, leave at midnight on bikes, lights, of course, and compete. Uh, not compete. Well, yeah, there were some guys who were competing. I was just doing it to finish and complete a full 100-mile ride starting at midnight, I think about 50% of which is on gravel roads, um, massive amounts of climbing and massive amounts of washboard roads. If you have been gravel riding at any given point in time, you know what I'm talking about. It's those chatter bumps that just my, you guys, it is a month after that ride and my hands are still sore in, the, in my knuckles and everything like that. My son and I did it. Talk about a, a great experience to do with your kid, although he's going to be 20 here soon, so I don't know if I could call him a kid anymore. But I uh, missed out on a, on a rock concert with my wife, and she took a friend instead, and I went for a 100-mile ride 
starting in midnight with my son, and it was it was an epic ride. It was great, and it was, it was such a such a cool experience. I got some footage of it, and I'll try to maybe put that up on the Spokane Bike Town episode. And a lot of a lot of great personalities, a lot of fun like that. But it did make me realize how gravel riding is growing in such leaps and bounds in terms of its popularity. Uh, out in the middle of nowhere, beautiful views and very little traffic to deal with and it's a different style of a of a bike it's a different style of a rider the rider is more relaxed the rider is more kind of that mountain biking style where it's you know they'd rather have well hell they had a beer beforehand you know they'll do that sort of thing where road cyclists tend to be a little bit more uptight and you know i'm not bashing on road cyclists i'm a roadie died in the wool roadie but um it i i think i can see how gravel racing is growing in its popularity and with that being said, today's guest is uh, the main man behind GravelCyclist.com. If you've been able to check out that website, he goes under the nickname of Jom. Jom? Jom. I think something like that. It's a, it's a written site. So, you know, although they do have a lot of uh, videos, links that I'm going to be checking out in my near future. But Jason O'Mahony is his name, and he is the founder and main man behind GravelCyclist.com. I had a chance to catch up with him. We had about 18 times we tried to make this interview happen, and we finally got it together. I apologize, guys. We had a little bit of audio problem with Skype, but um, after going through it, I'm able to hear the entire interview, so hopefully you will be able to also. Before I get to that, you guys, I do have to mention this wonderful show sponsors, don't I? Yes, I do. Noon. Noon Hydration, NoonLife.com, tablets for hydration, for energy, for all kinds of great things that they're producing over at NoonLife.com. Be sure and check them out. I occasionally throw out some discount codes, and, and so get to our Facebook page, and you can see those there, and I'll throw those out on, on Facebook every so often when they come my direction. Also, thanks to Honey Stinger, HoneyStinger.com. Um, I've been devouring their protein bars. Those are what I've been having for having for breakfast lately, and they're really good stuff. So uh, big thanks to Honey Stinger for being a supporter of the show and, of course, our friends over at Fit for Hope. Sent me a gigantic crate of stuff to give away at our live shows. So come to the live shows, you guys. We're scheduling those right now, and I will have all kinds of stuff from hats to can koozies to I mean you name it shirts everything like that so big thanks to those guys go over there if you're planning on training for something sign up it's it's kind of you know think of it it's a support organization it is it it's with information it's with training tips and it's and you're getting your ass in shape for a good cause which is a win-win isn't it? So stop doing that Facebook shit where you dedicate your birthday to a cause because that's just annoying and go and get fit and get ready for race season for a cause. That's a better one. That's, that's my personal opinion. You guys, enough yammering by yours truly. Let's get to Jason O'Mahony on the Pack Filler Podcast. All right, guys, today's guest is founder of EverythingGravelCyclist.com and a participant in all things, as he states in his bio, using the term Lime Rock. His gnome de plume is John, but for the sake of the introduction, he's allowing me to break the seal and let everybody know why on the show today we have Jason O'Mahony. How are you, sir? Uh, very good, Mike. Thanks for asking. Hey, thank you. First of all, as as I said before we, we came on the air today, I want to put myself out there to the listeners and say that I have to thank Jason for helping me make this interview happen. Our schedules have been insane over the summer, and uh, we've made about, I, I think, about 15 different attempts to make this happen, and I take blame for all of them, but uh, you've been patient and professional, so thanks a lot for that, man. Um, yeah, we're all, it's not like we're starving on the streets or anything like that. We're just trying to do a podcast about bike riding. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so hey, let me, let me just ask you, my listeners know where this is going. I like to start with a little perspective and find out about the people who've been on the show and where and when cycling entered your life. So how about that one? Okay, so I got into cycling around 1991, 1992 when I was living in Australia. I'd uh, seen road, track and time trialling mostly on television during the Olympic Games. 
and I was always blown away by um, uh, like the time trial bikes and that sort of thing. I always thought they were pretty wild-looking bikes. Um, they obviously weren't held by the same rules that the UCI has on bike design these days. And anyway, I was in a bit of a fantasy world, but I thought, what the hell? I'm going to try riding um, uh, bikes. And I basically borrowed my father's clunk at 10-speed, uh, well, heavy steel road bike at the time. And I started uh, riding some kilometres around my hometown, which is um, Adelaide in South Australia, also home to the Tour Down Under. And it kind of went from there. It, it didn't take long before... After six months of, of riding this bicycle, I said I really need to do an upgrade, and I spent way too much cash on my first bicycle. <laughs> so, what was that one, by the way? Well, uh, it was a um, oh my god, hang on, I think uh, it was a Concorde Gavina, which is a, an Italian bike, a steel frame. Um, mostly, it was very garish pink, fade to white with chrome stays and a chrome fork. Um, with um, downtube shifters. Everyone was riding yeah. downtube shifters. Well, yeah. well, a few got on STI at the time, but it was all eight-speed, and that's that was like the, you know, sort of a high-end tech bike at the time. Well, so the style of the PDM guys, those were, I think they were all on Concords, weren't they? They were, yeah. They they had the top-end bike, which oh, I yeah. couldn't afford, and my, <laughs> I didn't, I really wanted that bike. It was so much cash at the time, and I was a young lad. Oh, yeah. So... That is one bike I tell you I still have yet to find for my personal collection. It's one of my dream bikes. Oh, yeah. Bike. Oh, yeah. So, from, it, it, go ahead. Uh, the Squadra Corsa, I think, was the model, actually. Oh, man. Those were, okay. You're talking to a guy from that time, from that those years. So, I, I drool over all those old classic steel bikes. And if my wife would let me, I'd, I'd build the collection, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> so, from the research I've done and and, re- and kind of looking into what you did, first of all, what brought you to the States? But second of all, it looks like you went primarily from a road racing background straight into that of a gravel. Is that is that the case or was there a little mountain bike riding in between? Uh, uh, no, I'm pretty terrible on a mountain bike, actually. <laughs> I don't own one. I have, but I stink. So um, I'll give you the really quick story of how I got into the gravel thing. I was, um, I'm living in Gainesville, Florida these days, and I was when I started the gravel. Basically, I was looking for an alternative back in 2005 or 2006 to training at nighttime on road bikes. Um, I used to go out with a bunch of mates and we'd do loops of this one-mile stretch of office park. And I, I swear, man, we wore grooves in that place. There's so many laps around this place during the season. And, you know, I just got, got so bored with it. And one night I went exploring with a mate of mine, ironically another Australian guy, and we discovered all these lime rock, uh, dirt, and gravel roads uh, north of Gainesville. And we said, oh, my God, this is it. So we, uh, like, actually at the time, I did have a mountain bike. I'm sorry. So I used the mountain bike to kind of start off. And we started off doing some group rides here and there. And more and more guys started coming out on uh, mountain bikes. Then one night, some bloke rocked up with a cross bike. And that's when everything changed. It was, like, so much faster. Pretty much crushed us all. So it kind of started off an arms race, we call it, and um, that was the early beginnings of uh, my relating to gravel. So was now was there that style? Was this style of a competition at then, or was it just kind of a group friendly things like that? Or were there were there opportunities to go out there and, and get involved in this? I'm just trying to find the origin of where this where this style of riding and racing has come from, and I'm hearing a lot of different methods in which people came to it. Well, for me, it was training. So. We, we do training rides. So on the dirt, gravel roads, we do our intervals, we regroup, etc. But um, one of my teammates uh, on the unofficial gravelcyclist.com team, his name's Terry, he goes by the nomenclature or nickname of K-Dog on my website, was riding these sorts of roads back in the 80s on mountain bikes. Um, just as something different to do rather than riding on the road. Granted, they didn't have the problems with distracted drivers back in the 80s but uh, i think there's a lot of guys have been doing this for many many years and especially if you look at say um the european road racing a lot of these road races were on dirt roads in the 60s and earlier so it's not really anything new was was there something in particular that attracted you about it other than you know especially the once you got into the competition because i i read in your bio it, it you you went you know continuing as a road racer for a certain amount of time and then you kind of not necessarily you know quit road racing to dedicate your full time to gravel but it, it you definitely made a shift that way is there something that attracted you to that style of racing 
Yeah, I definitely prefer the challenge of the gravel races. Like, it wasn't always the competition that made the event harder. A lot of times it was the terrain. Um, you know, okay, it's easy to get dropped in a road race. That's happened so many times. But, you know, you're climbing some gnarly mountain and the terrain what dictates sometimes who can hang and who can't. It may be down to skills. That's not always the case, but that's what it was early on in at least. Um, and, and honestly, some of the scenery you see off the beaten track, so to speak, is so much uh, more enjoyable when ridden at a slower pace on a gravel bike versus on a road bike. You miss so much. Now, when you talk about this style of riding, especially this racing, how, if if I were if we were to be sitting down with a newcomer who's never understood this, other than the fact that wow, you're riding on gravel roads, how would you describe the the style of the rides and the races? Are they predominantly focused along, along longer distances? Is it this epic climbing type of terrain? You know what? How would you describe it to a new guy? Well, okay, so there's there's so many races nowadays. Honestly, I think there's more gravel races than there are road races, and there's obviously a lot of different types. You've obviously heard of big events such as Dirty Kansas, which is one of the premier events, is 200 miles. But there are many events that are that are much smaller and not as intimidating for people to start off. A lot of good promoters will put up, say, a 40 or a 30 mile race, or something even less, and encourage families to give it a shot. Let's see if they enjoy it. Um, honestly, I think the, the, the best number for a good gravel race would be event around 100 miles or 160 kilometers. 200 miles is pretty extreme. It's not something for everybody. It's kind of like the ultimate challenge. And, of course, you've got these other events that are really pushing the envelope that are even further again. Um, it's not something I really entertain doing, but gravel has something for everybody, I think. It, and and it seems like like you're saying that that distance element has to be a part of it. Um, here I've been you know like for example I've been kind of kicking around and playing with the ideas of some sort of a even like a circuit race or something shorter like that to see if you know if that would if that would fit into the to the genre so to speak. But it usually seems like when you're talking to somebody who's got a background in gravel who's interested in gravel, it's always these super endurance type of an event. Um, well, that yeah, I would say generally for some of the bigger races, the better known races, that is definitely true. Um, just last weekend before last, I flew out to Nebraska for Gravel Worlds, which is uh, 150 miles in length, wow. that is the full race. But um, I'll give you an example. I run an event here in Gainesville. Um, I call it the Heartbreaker Cycling Invitational. It's a homage to uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. <laughs> Tom Petty being from Gainesville originally, and the event itself. Um, basically it starts off as a social ride so we all ride out together from town and there's a predetermined point where I say okay if you want to ride hard go for it and from there on the riders have got about 50 to 60 miles of hard riding whatever they want to do and then we finish there's like a designated finish line everyone hangs out regroups and rides back into town so that's something I've enjoyed doing so you don't always have to go long to have fun on these sorts of um, events. So on these events, is that you're talking about these longer distances. So is it is it primarily kind of a self-support, uh, tra- no traffic control kind of enter at your own risk? Um, very much so. I mean, the roads are open, so and you know, how can you police 150 miles of, of oh, roads? It's yeah, possible. So you have to obey by the road rules, and it's also source efficiency. That's the other thing. Most of these uh, races do not allow. On course support, which I think is good. I mean, you have you have to be sufficient, so you have to plan out your nutrition and hydration, whether that be carrying it with you on your bike, or whether that be uh, say buying it at a convenience store or something like that. So you couldn't exactly say, for example, have one of your mates meet you and inject you V and collect a handout. That's a big no-no. Yeah. So all sufficiency is name of the game. That's interesting. You know, I, I just finished one here locally where I live, and but it's it's called the Midnight Century. It starts at, at midnight here in town, and it, it's a hundred mile, or I'd say it's about forty five to maybe fifty five percent gravel. I mean, mainly because you got to get the connection roads and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, there I've, I started this whole thing out, and there are people blowing through streetlights and intersections and stuff like that. And I, you know, I, that kind of took me by surprise, but I was wondering if that is something you commonly see in some of these events or if there's a penalty restriction or something like that involved for people who might be breaking road rules. Well, okay, if that was, if a person was spotted doing that in races I've done, that'd be disqualified immediately. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no way that people are going to put up with unsafe riding. And, you know, it also gives cyclists a bad name doing this 
behaving manner. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So the sport is, I mean, this style, and when I say the sport, it feels weird because it is still cycling in my, in my vision, but it, this genre of the sport has taken off incredibly in the past several years. Um, what do you think are the reasons for its increase in popularity? Well, I think one of the factors has to do with the distracted driving. Um, you know, riding on a road bike, you've got the, the fear factor of people texting, Facebooking, whatever, yeah. not paying attention. And uh, I, I just this year alone lost a very close friend who was, uh, I believe, uh, killed by a distracted driver. His name is Sean Smith, a great, great friend of mine, an amazing cyclist doing gravel and gravel. And with issues like that happening, Going to the dirt and gravel roads, you have less traffic to worry about. I mean, most people are concerned with getting their car all dirty. They're going to slow down. And any cars you encounter are usually locals, and they'll give you a wide berth. So that, that's one of the main reasons, I think. It's also very inclusive. And by that, what I mean is um, everyone's very encouraging. It's, almost, it's like cyclocross and mountain bike combined, really. Um, for example, if you're at a race, and you're riding along, you see a guy ahead of you, and he's uh, fixing a flat. In my experience, everyone will ask that guy, hey, man, you okay? You need any help? Mm-hmm. Whereas in uh, road racing, no one really gives a crap. That it's why past, it's like, you know, that's your tough luck. So it's people have used this terminology, the gravel tribe. I mean, that's pretty cool, but I really do think it's a lot more inclusive, um, and that's a big draw card. Um, and it doesn't really matter even how good or bad you are on the bike. Uh, it's about, you know, uh, participating and being encouraging with each other. And even the really top-notch riders, the ones I've met, have always had good words to say about everybody. There, there are some elements that, that I personally see that are happening that are kind of changing the style of the sport. Um, road racing is suffering, in my vision, temp- uh, currently from the fact that, and I've said this on the show before, you get dropped mm-hmm. in a road race, your day's over. You get dropped in a crit, you get lapped, they pull you out of the race. Um, the growth of some of these other sports, such as mountain biking, uh, which continues to steadily grow, and then this incredible boom in, in gravel cycling turns into a you versus the course or you versus somebody else near you or in front of you. You're challenging against your immediate group. Even if you finish dead, you know, dead last, you still had a great day out there and you were still getting applause and a beer at the finish. Um, is that is that... Do you, do you see that, and is that the kind of the thing that you think is, is making the boom for gravel cycling so great? Um, I think it definitely contributes to it for sure. Um, yeah, uh, it's like I said, it's very positive. I mean, you know, getting dropped at a road race in the first three miles, I mean, that just sucks. And whereas, of course, you know, a lot of times these are loops, or not, sorry, back up, not loops, but um, an out and back or a massive loop, and you've got to finish it. So it's just the challenge of knocking out uh, a time that maybe was something you could better from the year before, or maybe you know beating up one of your friends, or just just finishing the period. How about the writing style? Your website covers all kinds of stuff like this, especially for the newbies, and you have a specific entry on on the writing style. Not necessarily the the equipment. We're going to get into that, but but how you would actually physically ride these things. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, well, so I tell people, you know, a lot of these roads, uh, there's, there's good and bad. They're, they're so varied and it depends where you live. So you can have billboard smooth roads and you can ride them on a road bike with 28 uh, millimeter tires, but you've also got, you know, areas such as like Dirty Kansas. You've got some pretty gnarly stuff out there. 
some of the craziest stuff I've seen has been, for example, in North Carolina. But despite that, you really need to be very relaxed when you're riding the bike. Um, and when I, I, I like to, um, you might see some guys uh, at the Parish of Bay riding this style. They ride on top of the handlebars, the hands top relaxed, and they allow the bike to float. So I always tell people, let the bike try and float beneath you because the moment you start tensing up, it's when you make mistakes and sometimes you can often uh, sound a tricky descent that's covered with rocks and such. You can take the wrong line and, you know, flat your tyre, something like that, but being light on the bike, so to speak. So if on a 50% you get back behind the saddle, shift your weight back, mountain bikers do this sort of thing, and just be um, light and try and let the bike float about and do its thing. I, I get a lot of problems with uh, washboard sections, those chatter bumps that are in, in the roads that just, we did, like I said, I did this 100 miler and I could barely lift my arms above my head upon finishing it. Just the shoulders and the, my back and everything. Wrists were even toast. So the washboard is a worldwide phenomenon. It's also known as corrugations in um, South Africa and Australia. So there's no real good way to ride that stuff. <laughs> I mean, well, there is. You have to go fast. I mean, oh, God. I've seen, I've seen 25 mile an hour on some of the crazy nighttime training rides we do when the intervals are going on across washboard. Then you kind of get an equilibrium where you skip across the top. But that's not, you know, normal reality. In a <laughs> 70, 70 mile race, you're going to be toast when you hit this thing. So, honestly, bigger tires is what makes a difference. Um, your average gravel tire, say a 40 millimeter tire, is not going to give you much comfort over um, uh, washboards or corrugations, but uh, high pressure is definitely the number one factor in this Donrara sport between being comfortable and being usable, even on washboards. This is something I have to learn too, and this is actually where I, I first discovered your site because I'm, I'm attempting to, to my old nemesis cyclocross again, and. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, here I'm this, here I'm the guy who, you know, just kind of did cyclocross just because it was winter and, you know, I never knew anything about it. And I was looking up tire pressure issues and there's so much, uh, so much that goes into that. But of course I'm still, you know, just running a, a clincher out there and I'm terrified of uh, pinch flats or something like that. And I'm not a light guy, so I'm, you know, but then on the, on the, in the same equation, and I, sorry if I'm jumping subjects, you know, doing this ride a couple weeks ago, where I'm seeing guys on what looks like the equivalent of a, of a smoother mountain bike tire, and and they're able to ride those sections a lot more smoothly than I am. Am I screwed? Am I going to have to buy, like, five bikes? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, I mean, I've ridden a lot of gravel events on a uh, cross bike. The, the biggest difference between a cross bike and a gravel bike is geometry. You know, cross bikes are generally twitchier, that sort of thing. Gravel bikes more laid back and has bigger tire clearance ideally um, because bigger tires do make a difference i think in the comfort of the bike but also with the same token you need to have a bike that has clearance between the tire and the frame and allowance for mud pack up which you know all about in yeah. cyclocross so what what type if you had to build or, or suggest only one bike for gravel, racing, training, riding, all that kind of stuff, what, what in your opinion, would be that ideal setup? Yeah, do you want me to name a brand or... Anything, uh, yeah, anything. You know, it's especially when, you know, you're... And I'm, I'm th even down to tire sizes and stuff like that. Okay. Well, I mean, okay, first, I need to preface this by saying I can ride whatever I want. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I do review bikes, and I, I have to remain impartial, okay? But one of my... Uh, personal bikes, and I reviewed this bike a while ago. It was made by Linsky in um, yeah. uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. The bike is known as the Pro GR. It's a titanium bike. I really like titanium. It's it's a really tough, resilient material. God. But that bike has uh, been designed so that you can fit in. Uh, it will fit front and rear a 29 by 2 inch mountain bike tire. Wow. Now, when you're running 29, or obviously the rim's tight. But if you're in muddy conditions and you have to say, for example, run a proper mud tire, uh, in my case, it'd be the Panarasa Double King mud, which measures 700 by 35. Jeez. I've got a ton of room around that tire and no mud's going to pack up on that bike. So that's the bike I use for the gnarliest of races. 
Wow. Okay. Now I'm I'm way off on tire size here. Apparently, so I'm I'm putting this into a personal realm. Screw the listener now. I want to get my personal advice here. So, <laughs> but it's it's to hear something that large in terms of tire size. That's not your standard little cross bike tire. No, no, not at all. I mean, the the average most people are riding around on forty millimeter tires. I guess these states, but. Um, then that's talking about 700C. You've also got 650B or 27.5, which yeah. originally came from mountain bikes. So that's been adopted to the gravel side of things because you can say, for example, use a bike designed for 700C, take a 650B wheel and fit a mountain bike size tire. Um, it depends on the frame, of course, yeah. and possibly squeeze a 2.1 frame tire, 2.1 inch tire into the frame, and you could therefore ride some trails or do some you know crazy mental race on that bike. Um, that has, I mean, really you need a bike design for both wheel sizes, to be honest, but you can, you can tinker in this sport, which is what I love to do. I like to break rules with stuff. So, you know, I've had all sorts of crazy stuff going on in my house. <laughs> it also sounds to me like you're talking about we got to run disc brakes too. Um, yes, yeah, in, in that situation, disc brakes. I yeah. mean, disc brakes, you know, they work great in discussing conditions. Let's not kid ourselves, and they work really well in on descents. My my personal travel gravel bike, as I call it, which is a Richie breakaway cross yeah. bike um, still has candies and you know on the right course you can have no problems at all but if you have mud that's going to cause some problems obviously and the mud varies around the country so um you're in are you in california we're about to you i'm in washington i apologize okay no. so i haven't been to your state actually i wish but, i was um, in, i wish i was in california it's about to get cold and wet here oh boy i'm sorry mate <laughs> i live in florida for a reason in north florida that, that is um so for example, southern Georgia, Oklahoma, and um, some parts of Kansas have this really nasty, um, like, mud clay. And it's, it's like bubble gum. It sticks to the tire and clogs the bike, and it can destroy drivetrains. Whereas um, in um, Minnesota, I rode an event called the Almanza 100, which is amazing, I have to say. It's, it's basically like lime rock, really sandy kind of conditions, and nothing sticks. So it just depends where you ride. And that can often dictate what sort of bike you need if you like to stay local and generally don't want to travel too much. Oh, my God. You're, you're giving me I'm, – I'm using this as testimony. You're giving me, in essence, permission to go out and buy like five bikes for one discipline alone. Oh, well, you know, my personal stash, I've got about four gravel bikes and three cross bikes. So, you know, uh, I'm not married, so I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's still perfect. That I, I'm, I'm loving that. So talk to me about some of the events. Uh, so what are some of the, you know, biggest or, or not? A, they don't have to be the biggest, just some of the best ones you've attended and, and ones you'd recommend. Okay. Okay. So uh, the my favorite event of all time, and it's it's um, actually it's a road bike event, but you use a vintage road bike on oh. a mix of well probably about eighty percent gravel roads and uh, a little bit of pavement, and it's in uh, Tuscany in Italy. It's called La Roica. Oh yeah, La Roica. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's amazing. I mean, um, it. I'm not a religious bloke, but it is like a religious experience for me on a bicycle. It was my best day on a bicycle ever. I cobbled together a 1987 Vitus um, with oh. Mavic group set, which is a homage <laughs> to uh, Sean Kelly, one of my favorite pro riders of all time. Oh, man. And, yeah. And um, just the event, seeing the sorts of bikes that people ride, it's like cosplay for cycling. Um, I rode the full Monty course, which is about, I think, 225 kilometers. It's, it's very hard. You have to use toe strap pedals, down tube shifters, exposed brake cables, but it is such an experience. Just the scenery, um, the camaraderie, the food, the, the rest stop food is off the chart. I mean, it's like a culinary experience with Chianti wine. <laughs> I cannot recommend this event enough to anybody. It is my favorite event of all time. Okay, now you just tapped into, I don't. I, everybody on this show knows how much of a retro nerd I am. First of all, I'm old enough to have raced that kind of stuff. Second of all, I, I've been fortunate enough to have Sean on this show before, and um oh. And, really? And, oh yeah, and I've got a in I've got in my basement as we speak. Uh, it was the Peugeot Vitus um, cross work they did, where it was that one of their first carbon entrance into the into the whole thing with campy setup and all that kind of stuff. And I don't ride it very often, mainly because back in the days when I did race on Vetuses, they were so soft that I could have sworn the bottom bracket hit, hit my ankles on you know when I was really sprinting hard enough, but. My father and I said, you know, Sean Kelly rides in 
damn it, you're going to ride them. So, so you just tapped into something that, that is just perfect for me in this show. So you can totally hit up that event with that bike. Um, but definitely make sure everything is period because the organizers will check your bike out and they will disqualify you if you do not meet the prereqs. So, so what, what's the year cutoff then? I mean, like if I had a newer Avocet computer on it, are we like <laughs> toast? Um, they don't know. They didn't care about computers, but pre-87 87. Is, is the cutoff. Now, interestingly enough, the year I rode LaRoyca was 2016. They did allow a certain Bianchi to ride, which is a new bike, funnily enough, because Bianchi sponsored the event. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. it was a retro bike, you know, kind of themed that way. But you know, and the the fun thing is building a bike to to do the ride. That it took me about a year and a half to find the parts, and because I'm a Mavic nut, okay. and I've been riding a while, obviously not as long as you, but I want to have a really accurate, uh, period correct bike, and uh, it gave me great pride riding that bike around the place. <laughs> oh my God, the shipping alone would scare the hell out of me too, because you know I I know these things are just, especially I I can only imagine how. You know, brittle these carbon tubes are since the damn thing was made in the in the early '80s. You know, so I've just you know open up my bike bag when I get to Italy, and I've got this pile of chips. I'd probably ride the alloy version myself. I've got a uh, Teledyne Titan in my stash as well, which is one of the first massive titanium frames. And there's no way I'm riding that thing at a Leroyca. No way. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, there's the dream, Leroyca. How about how about something more domestically or things like that that somebody around here might be able to, to tackle? Even though my okay. listeners. Okay, I mentioned this before. Um, in the Midwest, uh, the it's considered the granddaddy of all yeah. the races. It's uh, Almanza 100 in um, Spring Valley, Minnesota. Basically, it's the southeast corner of Minnesota, about two hours in a car away from uh, Minneapolis. And it was founded by a bloke. His name is Chris Skagen or Stogan. If, if he's listening, I apologize if I screwed <laughs> up his name. But um, it's, a, it's a free event. I mean, the cost is irrelevant to me. The, the event is it's got uh, beautiful scenery, a lot of climbing, a lot of like rolling hills, and um, you know, three thousand people at the event. It is an amazing event. Wow. Now, the event doesn't surprise the year I arrived road was last year, twenty seventeen. It was pissing rain the entire time and thirty nine degrees Fahrenheit. So oh. <laughs> only about three hundred showed up, but I did finish. <laughs> wow. That, that's a great event. Um, another one in the northeast is in Massachusetts called D2R2. This is not a race. It's basically a pleasure ride. If you're going to do D2R2, uh, I suggest you do the full Monty. It's about 130 miles. It's got amazing scenery, a lot of climbing, about 13,000 feet, and just uh, scenery off the chart. It's such an amazing event. Okay, so these these events are popping up all over the place, and this is a great thing. I don't I don't want to sound like the pessimist here, but sometimes when things catch on so well, everybody gets involved, and it becomes too cliche, and somebody comes along and screws it up. The posers start showing up. Uh, United States, USA Cycling comes in and restricts the shit out of it, and makes everybody get insurance, and the officials all have to be there. Um, is there anything you see as the sport has been growing that could potentially just drop a bomb and screw the whole thing over? You know, it's funny you mentioned USA Cycling. Um, we, one of my guys wrote an article about, about three years ago on his reasoning why he quit road racing in Florida. Okay. It was to do with the negativity at the time. And we also saw, um, you know, guys doping in, in masters racing. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, that article triggered a reaction for USA Cycling. Um, what's the name of the bloke who runs it? Uh, what's his name? Derek uh, Bouchard Hall. Yeah. yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. Anyway, he reached out, um, and one of my guys spoke at length with him. We conveyed, you know, our thoughts because no one wants to have these events governed. They're basically, you know, free for all fun fest. We don't want any rules. We don't need licenses. Um, so one what I understand, USA Cycling is trying to get into the business of offering insurance. So that's their call. And obviously it shows that they are losing draw to road cycling. Now, um, in terms of my thoughts, I really want to see the grassroots side of the sport stay. Um, but like Say with a reduction in the number of road uh, racing licenses and such, we're definitely going to see more and more road cyclists coming across to this long last. Um, I, I really hope it doesn't turn into a negative roadie fest, which is one of the reasons why I quit uh, the, the road racing in 2011. I mean, already we're seeing some big name uh, riders, uh, sometimes ex professionals, at uh, some of the 
banner events and I've seen um, team tactics um, and, and particularly in the front. Now, with that said, I honestly think that five to ten percent of the attendees of these sorts of races give a crap about you know winning the overall, or kicking ass, or beating each other up. But the other ninety percent, which is rifle, we just care about finishing, having a good time, and beating uh, our best time. Well, you know, it, it it almost reminds me to a certain extent of, uh, for example, I did Leadville a couple of years ago, and yes, that's a mountain bike event, but it has it what you're describing is a very similar feel. You've, you're starting with some of the most elite riders in the world. You don't see them after the start goes; they're gone. But it, it but you're still on the same course at the same time, and you're still having a great time and, and everything just feels a lot more approachable. I don't know if that's, if, if I'm, if I'm hitting the mark there or not. No, you're spot on. Uh, well, for example, at this year's Dirty Kansas, um, now I, I kind of milk the community privilege. I unfortunately start on the front line. I always film the front row and there's always some really high profile riders. Uh, Neil Shirley, um, ex-professional, he's a you know, great guy, good rider, obviously. But uh, really of interest was the guys who were next to me, Gens Voigt and um, Sven Nate. Wow, okay. Uh, and and, I, and I, I said to uh, Jens, and I might, well, I'm not going to swear on, on uh, audio. I you, can, you can swear on this one all the time, but yeah, it's <laughs> but, fine uh, with me. But. I, I said to Jens, I've met Jens a long time ago. I said, Jens, what the fuck are you doing here, mate? <laughs> I said, this is a 107-mile gravel race. And his answer was, well, you know, I uh, I want a new challenge in my life. I said, okay. I said, Mike, my, my advice to you is don't go berserk in the first couple of miles. Just stride tempo. And the funny thing was he went with the front bunch. He cracked at some point. And uh, looking at his time, he was only three minutes faster than my best time in 2017. So I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> um, now, as far as um, Sven, that poor bugger, he had multiple punctures. And I actually captured one of those um, – on camera in my race video. And one of my regrets from this year's Dirty Cans was I should have stopped and helped Sven change a flat because that is allowed in the rules. That would have been kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Not, well, it's also nice to kind of ride ahead of him and just kind of feel like a hero for a few minutes, right? Yeah. You know, he had a lot of pressure. He had a camera crew standing around filming him while he's you know, changing a flat like that. Oh, God. <laughs> So, t- yeah. so tell me about how Gravis, Gravel Cyclist came to fruition. What motivi- motivated you to create the site and all the associating multimedia options that came with it? Okay, so around about me, think. So I mentioned before I started the like riding on dirt roads and stuff around about 2005, 2006. And GoPro and uh, another company called Contour, they started making some yeah. Cameras ran about 2007, I think it was, and I, I bought a couple, and I started making some pretty primitive videos of, you know, training rides with mates, and one was a helmet cam, so they were, they were pretty dodgy, but I, I I did that, and I went to uh, some of the uh, my earlier events back in 2009, and I one of my first videos was an event uh, called Rouge Roubaix in um, just north of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and yeah, so I was making these videos, and I mean, I, it was just mostly from my recollection. You know, I, I had a little um, YouTube channel. It wasn't the Gravel Cycles YouTube channel. It was something else. But it was mostly from my own newsman, and I had a video archive. And a friend of mine uh, at the time, she suggested that, you know, hey, why don't you start like a website where you share your experiences, not just videos, but, you know, talk about your rides and that sort of stuff and just see how it goes. And that was back um, probably June of 2014. And based on that crazy idea, I, I launched the site on August 1 of 2014 and basically taken my wife over since then. <laughs> so you s- go ahead. You seem to be the workhorse on this site, but you see, according to the website, bio and things like that, you've got quite a few else of people, uh, you know, good, good group of people involved. Well, that's all smoke and mirrors mostly. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people think I've got this production crew and all this crap, mate. Honestly, it's 99% is me. Um, I receive contributions from some of the guys who race with me, and I've also got some guest reviewers and a couple of uh, guest contributors in some other states. But, yeah, most of the time it's me. So if you're listening, people, I finish my regular job. I might get a bike ride in sometimes, and then I'm up until about 2 in the morning most nights knocking this stuff out. And then – Back to my regular gig at seven o'clock. So 
that's a lot going on. That is a shocker to me. Here, I do you, you know that I'm sitting in a really high end uh, broadcasting studio, you know, in my high rise apartment doing all this, and this is my only job. And if you believe that, I got a bridge in San Francisco to sell you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, and we all do it for the money, right? Oh, my God, yeah. Mate, I'll be on minimum wage if it was for money, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so not, you know, not to beat around the bush here, but, uh, I, you know, looking at your friends who are on the site and things like that, and, I, and, you know, and talking to a lot of the people who are in the demographic and seeing the races that I've attended and things like that, um, a lot of gravel cyclists seem to be people, primarily male, over the age of 40. Do you, do you see that as the case, or is there, being at these other events, do you see a lot of growth in, in multiple age groups and, and multiple you know, genders? No, I definitely am going to agree with you there, and uh, this is based on statistics, which is a bit of a bummer, but the average viewer of most of my videos is a male from age 45 to 54. Yeah. So, so we really need to get more younger people into the sport, but that's not a problem just for gravel cycling. That, that's cycling, period. I mean, that's, I think, been a big problem, especially in um, the road scene. Um, now, Dirty Kansas took a really good initiative starting in 2017 where they they have a problem. They've got so many people wanting to that race, they can, you know, they could pick and choose, but yeah. rather they've started doing a lottery. However, they've reserved 200 places for women, which is a really good thing to do to encourage ladies to get into the sport. Not just that event, but, I mean, ideally elsewhere. In fact, they've got a camp, uh, I think, in a couple of weeks' time where it's a women's only camp and trying to uh, show ladies some of the, the things that go hand in hand with this sort of sport, or this, this part of the sport, I should yeah. say. Do you do you have anything you would attest that to that that were you know I I am seeing a lot of juniors in mountain biking, I'm seeing um, I'm seeing women getting involved in mountain biking, um, you know but ac- but across the board it's still definitely that that man demographic. Do you do you see any reason why that might be the case? Is it the intimidation factor? Is it the equipment? Is it the cost? Of whatever. Well, I'm mean, sure you could say it could be the cost. I mean, the, the, the races, they vary in price. A lot of those are free. The bikes can be expensive, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, maybe word hasn't gotten out because the, the, this sort of racing and riding is more inclusive. It's much like mountain biking. So I think it's a matter of time before we, we'll see younger folks and women getting into this side of the sport. It's definitely not as intimidating as road cycling and you know and i hope with like guys like myself doing this website and others out there that we provide some kind of service to show hey you know what anyone can do this stuff i mean if i can anyone can yeah right on okay so before i start to get to the end here let's say for example i'm a guy living in a northwest united states town with access to gravel but Mm. i don't necessarily know where the gravel roads are. So, for example, how did you, or how would you recommend somebody get involved in it and and start to build their own routes? Is it just kind of go out and find them by luck, or do we get, you know, detailed okay. map? So, I'm going to plug my website right now because on my page, on my site, there is a newbies area which is devoted to cartography and building uh, maps, which covers all of that. But um, how I started off was. Um, at the time, back in 2005, 2006, there was no Google Street View, no Google yeah. satellite map. So I had to go out and find the roads. That's how it was. And a lot of times I would contact the county if I knew where I was riding, and they'd often have a map of where the dirt roads were. So I'd figure something out. And um, this was you know, just around the time when I just got a Garmin. So the Garmin was a huge game changer for me for routing. That made things a lot easier versus using, say, a Q-sheet. But nowadays you've got Google Street View. So I, I spend hours on websites such as Rival GPS, and you can um, you can use the Street View facility, assuming it's there, or satellite to try and plot out your routes. Alternatively, people have got a lot of routes on those um, those sorts of sites. Um, and we think obviously Strava, that's a big one that yeah. a lot of people like to use. Now you can't really go searching for keywords on Strava anymore. They kind of remove that uh, capability when they had that issue with those blokes running around that, that military base overseas. Yeah. <laughs> but um, if you can pay, for example, follow a rider on Strava, a, a guy who does gravel, you can see, okay, he's riding here or there. I could perhaps try one of his routes, something like that. Okay, okay, that helps. So of yeah. all, all, all the places you've been out and, and ridden, you've t- um, I mean, on your, on your website you talk about, you know, 
back in Australia and Adelaide, you know, some of the best riding you've ever done. But if you had to pick an area or a place or an individual ride itself that you would say is one of the best places in the world to straddle the top tube, where would you go? Well, it's, okay, it's going to depend on the time of year, okay, because I despise winter. So otherwise, I'll probably say I love Vermont. Um, there's some amazing riding in Vermont and New England. Okay. Uh, that's one of my play, favorite places in the United States without, without doubt. Okay. Um, it's, it's very underrated. And we got to get you up here to the Northwest. We got, we got some good stuff up here. Well, you know what's funny? I've crossed off um, 46 states of the United States so far, and Washington State is on my to-do list. Well, I'm telling you, I, I know some people up here who could probably take good care of you, man. Yeah, I, I know about some events up there. I maintain this mega pan calendar on my website, which devotes in a, a lot of my time. Yeah. So I get to see these events firsthand. Well, dude, it's it's a great site, and I'm not just saying this to kiss your ass here, but it, you've got a ton of a ton of information going on it and things like that. Um, so, you know, obviously, gravelcyclist.com is the website. Where else can people find you and, and see what's going on? They can also check me out on Facebook. Um, so most of my posts on the website, I go to Facebook as well. I also share special photographs that don't always make it to the website. There's also my Instagram presence and uh, my YouTube channel, which everyone should really subscribe to, okay, so I can make some <laughs> some money once in a while off yeah. this video. <laughs> Trust um, No, yeah, I know what you're saying because uh, I've got to switch to video here too because that's where all the money is. It's a lot of work, man. I mean, I, I do um, a lot of video reviews these days. I think that if you're going to do a review – Try and put the effort and do it with a video. People like to see the product versus a flat form, you know, web page. Yeah. So with that said, I'm not going to be doing video reviews of tires anytime soon. It's kind of hard to make <laughs> a video about a tire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just stills, just moving stills. You can do them in that Ken Burns effect so they slightly move across the screen or something like that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, but I've got a really wild wheel set coming up pretty soon on the YouTube channel, so people should check it out, okay? <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jason, as I said, at the onset of the show is kind of a pain in the ass for, for me to get my shit together and get you and get you on. And you were, you were incredibly accommodating and I appreciate your time. And, uh, I love the site and I love just all the information on it. It's, it's a form of the sport that I think is going to potentially save. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I'm blowing this out of proportion, but it's going to save the, the road bike industry to a certain degree because the, the standard drop bar is going to, I don't know. I, I just feel that road biking needs to do some serious, I don't know, self-reflection. Mate, I think you're right because with a gravel bike or a cross bike, you can ride almost anything just with one bike, swap out tires, boom, off you go. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, right on. Well, well, once again, thanks for your time, man. Oh, thanks, mate. My pleasure. So there you are, all the information you need to know about riding in the gravel. I'm personally going to get uh, take some of those advice in terms of trying to find gravel sections. I live in an area where there are, are ample supply of gravel riding, and I've got to just go link it all together, you know, and find it and, and get out there because it's a, it's a fun way to ride. I don't have a super specific gravel bike, you guys. I have a my wonderful uh, friend over at Elephant Bikes, Glenn Copas made me a, a, a cyclocross steel bike. That's the one, in fact, I rode in the Midnight Century. And it's it's perfect. It's a little bit shorter angles, I mean, a little bit shorter top tube, things like that. And it's just, it's a fun bike to ride. And it's I could definitely see myself getting into a lot more of this style of riding, not to mention probably a lot more styles of bikes. Speaking of Elephant, he's got this bike called the National Forest Explorer, NFE. Yeah, if you get a chance to check them out, this is an unpaid-for endorsement for for Elephant Bikes. Go check out these bikes. They're just—it's like a cross between a, a a mountain bike and a and a road bike. It's just got the those fatter tires, and I think it would have been perfect on this type of terrain, especially those chatter bumps I had to deal with. Um, so yeah, there we go. Another bike in the garage, right? Sure, why not? You guys, thanks for uh, your support on in terms of Bike Town. I know you guys are anxious to see our video episodes. We're working on those. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I want to get at least two or three ready to rock and ready to release so we can release, uh, I guess, a trilogy at once and see what everybody thinks and move from there. And we'll keep going. Right on? 
Right on. Okay, stay tuned for live shows. We will be posting those as they come. If you have a bike town, if you live in a bike town, or if you live in a place that would probably be a fun place for me to come and host a live show or something like that, drop me a note. Patrick at packfiller.com. Or you can follow us, you know, all the regular stuff. Rate the show, follow us on iTunes, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Instagram, Twitter, yada, yada, yada. We'll catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.